welcome to the Exponential View podcast. I'm Azim Azar, your host and the creator of the newsletter Exponential View. In today's podcast, I'm in conversation with Elad Gill. Elad is a company builder, an entrepreneur, and an investor based in Silicon Valley. He has just published a new book, The High Growth Handbook. It lays bare some of the practical secrets and tools of the trade that have allowed Silicon Valley firms to grow so large and be the dominant players in the digital economy of today and tomorrow. This is the fourth episode of our season where we look at the changing political economy. Elad provides insights in just how these innovators build and grow from his own experience at Google and Twitter and as an investor in firms like Airbnb, Pinterest, Coinbase and Stripe. Our discussion segues into the near future as we tackle where blockchain and crypto is in its development cycle and how the artificial intelligence and crypto communities overlap. As always, please find a moment to like this podcast on iTunes or share it on social media. It really helps us reach new audiences. You, dear listener, know lots of people that I don't. And if you're not subscribed to Exponential View, you can find the newsletter at www.exponentialview. www.exponentialview.co. Now, on to our podcast. Good morning, Elad. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. We may not have time to cover uh, every aspect of what you've been been doing, but I know that uh, your your Twitter and Google experience, but Twitter in particular, was quite formative to the book that you have just uh, written on uh, scaling companies. T- tell me a little bit about what the inspiration behind writing that book was. Sure. So um, I've gotten involved with a number of companies quite early. So I invested in, in Wish, which is now a multi-billion dollar company when it was literally one person. I got involved with Stripe or an Airbnb when there were eight to 10 people. And what I found was that while there was a lot of startup advice for the early stages of uh, companies, sort of the zero to one Peter Thiel phase, there wasn't very mm-hmm. much advice around what happens with something once, once something starts working. Uh, you know, how should you think about hiring executives, doing reorgs, internationalizing, buying other companies, um, and the like. And so uh, basically this book, the High Growth Handbook, is um, a consolidation of a lot of things that I've learned either through my own operating or from working with, with some of these um, high-profile startups um, around best practices for scaling. Right. I mean, it's interesting because you say there's, uh, there's the Peter Thiel book, there's Lean Startup, there's any number of essays from Paul Graham uh, of Y Combinator on those early stages. It almost feels like we've systematized what's a really difficult process uh, for the early stage entrepreneur, which is how do, you, how do you get a team that sits together and still works together uh, over that very tough early period, how do you achieve product market fit and how do you do that without running out of money? And, and we, we seem to have quite a deep knowledge base and experience set around that collectively. I think um, the early stages are, are, I mean, it's incredibly hard to start a company and it's, it's incredibly difficult to build something that works. But when all said and done, an early stage company boils down to don't fight with your co-founder, don't run out of money and find product market fit. And as long as you do those mm. three things, which are very hard things to do, um, then you're in good shape. Uh, for a later stage company, the surface area that you need to approach is much broader. So you, you need to start thinking about functions that you've never probably dealt with um, as a founder. So how do you hire a CFO or a general counsel? How do you deal with regulatory issues? Um, you know, how do you think about M&A? How do you do late stage financings? And so there's this, uh, and how do you manage people at scale and how do you communicate them with, with them, which is honestly, it tends to be the hardest things to do. And so 
really, there's all these new things that you have to figure out as, as your company starts to scale. And uh, to your point, there are limited resources around that. And so that was really the impetus for the book. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's your book and there's Reed's book, uh, Blitzscaling, which uh, uh, Reed Hoffman from from LinkedIn, who's, who, yeah, who published this book, Blitzscaling, a, a year or so ago. But I, I found it, it's interesting that, um, in a sense, um, w- one of the things that, that you've done um, I- I- in yours is give quite a lot of vignettes of uh, kind of practical um things that one needs to to look out for and that communication point i think is a really critical one it's one of the things that you really notice when my company was acquired um we were acquired by a business that was um you know 30 times the size by headcount and just the information flow was so distinct um even though they had great communication lines um in place you were still two or three layers away from from the front, right? From the, the edge, the perimeter of the business when you were running it. Yeah, absolutely. The, the two key things, I think, from a communications perspective that a lot of people don't know about things that are growing really fast is, number one, if a team is scaling very rapidly, so say that you go from 50 to 200 to 500 people over the course of two years, after two years, 90% of the company is new. In other words, mm-hmm. they've, they've, you know, they're people who've just been onboarded um, and so you have to constantly refresh and repeat things over and over and over again. Um, but also the scale of the company is radically different. You know, when you're 50 people, there's maybe one to two layers between the CEO and every other person. Everybody fits into one large room. You can do an all hands really easily. When you're 500 people, you suddenly have four to five layers between most people and the CEO. And you also are probably distributed geographically. And so the ways that you have to communicate in terms of how do you start thinking about coordinating the all hands and video conferencing it, how do you think about email and written communication versus being able to just go and talk to somebody, how do you think about all the infrastructure that you need to build for people to be able to onboard properly and to really learn what's going on at the company. That's incredibly hard to do for um, first-time founders or executives who haven't really uh, worked at scale before. And just looking at that particular issue, what are the the tricks, what are the design patterns or the practices that you put in place that make it effective? There's a set of both processes as well as very simple tactics. I'll give you an example. Um, Meeting notes, although it sounds incredibly stupid, is incredibly effective if you systematize how do you communicate out to an organization after every meeting. And So typically you want to include who are the key attendees, what was discussed, what were the key takeaways. And then you want to figure out what are the sets of email lists that you communicate out to. So that's a very mundane example. But little things like that can have an enormous impact in terms of transparency across an organization. I think there are more radical things you can do, which are more experimental. So, for example, Stripe um, actually allows uh, you to CC effectively the entire company on every email, if you so choose, which means that if somebody wants to, they can go back and look at the email history of past employees for every single item that they've touched. Now, they can also drop people from that CC so that, you know, there's certain things that are private or they shouldn't be discussed broadly. Uh, but there are more radical experiments or approaches that people have tried as well in terms of more radical transparency. That is quite, uh, that's quite the thing that I hadn't come across that. And I'm just thinking about the combinatorial explosion. Because normally in a traditional company, the, you know, the big gaffe you could make is hit reply all to the email that's come from the office manager to say, you know, there's a problem with the elevators or the lifts uh, and it, you know, marks you out and, and to actually embed that in your internal communication system as a sort of design rather than a, an error is pretty brave. And it works, do you think? 
I think it works, but I think what they have to do is um, very heavy focus on email filtering. And so I think the CC is effectively morphed into a email list that people can go and subscribe to or look at versus the default everybody gets it. I think Stripe is now about a thousand people. And so at that scale, things that you could do at 10 people just don't really translate, but they still have focused on continuing the transparency, which I think is great. Yeah, it's it's so interesting because sitting here in the UK and in London, we uh, are starting to see companies that scale. Uh, you know, we have we have Spotify as a $30 billion company uh, with a strong European uh, heritage, but we don't have the same track record and that means we don't have the same hands-on experience uh, of the processes and the, the the successes and the failures nor do we necessarily have the management talent the people who are your VP of marketing who've come in when a company's had a headcount of 50 and taken it to a headcount of 1500 or 2000 uh, do you think that's a secret source a kind of an ongoing competitive advantage uh, for Silicon Valley firms I actually think it is. I think the current conventional wisdom is that there's going to be giant clusters of startups everywhere around the world now and that things are becoming increasingly decentralized and distributed. And I think the opposing viewpoint on that would be that there are certain things that really prevent companies from hitting the next level of scale. And I think a big part of that is actually talent and having executives or experienced hires on board who've been through that process and can really take things to the next level. So when I do talk to European founders or founders in Latin America or other regions, the common theme is we just don't have people who have operated at the same scale and we need to either import them or we get kind of stuck at a certain level. I think eventually, though, um, ecosystems, uh, you know, generate these big upside successes like a Spotify or others. And eventually those, those individuals can go on and sort of seed the executive teams or the ranks of the next generation of startups. So it, it'll bootstrap eventually, but I do think that's a real short-term advantage for Silicon Valley or short to medium term. Yeah, you, you know, this idea of it bootstrapping eventually is a very powerful one. It's been a motivating force within within Europe. I mean, I've been uh, in this in this environment for nearly 25 years, and it's certainly we have a much rich, richer ecosystem than we, we ever did, and we have more talent and more capital and more uh, sort of winners. Uh, I, I just have a I have a question mark about whether the the idea of pre- preferential attachment, which is this idea that comes out of network theory um, that suggests that rich get richer or strong get stronger, um, still seems to show its face. And you know, I'm an early stage investor. I'm a venture partner at an early stage fund in in London called Kindred. And one of the things that we notice is that some of our businesses that are growing very very quickly. Uh, make the switch to San Francisco and move, you know, a CEO or the headquarters um, over there for fundamentally for reasons of scale. Uh, and I, I can understand why that happens because you just have access to to more customers and you get have access to engineering leads and sales leads who know what it is to go from, you know, $10 million in ARR to a uh, hundred million of re- recurring revenues. So maybe I'm a bit more pessimistic, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I actually am. Um, I, I, I agree with you. I think uh, it's not um, a surprise that most uh, most industries end up with industry towns. You have Hollywood uh, for movie making and, and Bollywood, obviously, uh, for Indian uh, movies. And in Africa, obviously, that's concentrated uh, in Nigeria. You have mm-hmm. uh, financial centers in terms of London, in terms of New York. Um, Hong Kong, et cetera. And so 
you do see, I think, these very strong network effects and clusters that occur. And that's the reason that you end up with these industry towns. And so I don't, I don't think it's an error to your point. I think it's really an effective sort of network dynamics and, and the underlying math that governs it. So there is an exception to all of this scaling stuff. And we haven't said China yet, talked about China yet. But, you know, I get a sense just um, looking at, at, at China that A, these companies have learned how to scale. I mean, they're huge. They're, uh, you know, outside of Alibaba and Tencent and Baidu and Financial, Pinduoduo uh, and so on. They're also scaling, right? But they're not coming from the heritage of, you know, 50 years of this, which Silicon Valley has. So what's, what do you think their pathway uh, to scale is? I think it's a great question. I think China is very unique. You obviously still have an industry town in terms of Beijing really being the tech center, although the Chinese companies are a little bit more distributed than that. I think that one of the key differences or one of the key nuances with China is that due to government protectionism, there really wasn't competition in the Chinese market outside of Chinese uh, companies competing with each other. And so you saw that in terms of the entire internet wave, and you're now actually seeing that in healthcare where, for example, a foreign company cannot have ownership in a diagnostics company in uh, China. So if you're starting a genomics company and you want to go international, you can't enter the Chinese market. Um, effectively, what that means is that you create these local monopolies and you give the time and room for local champions to grow. But you also notice that some of the Chinese companies pretty early on, not in all cases, but in many cases, ended up with... Um, people from the West who uh, played key roles in some of the early executive positions of the companies, although really, you know, it's, it's the Chinese executives who ended up driving it or the Chinese founders who ended up driving it. So I think you ended up with protectionism plus, you know, time for founders to really learn and sort of be forced to scale. And then you had a little bit of augmentation with, with some uh, with some foreign insights on top of it. I think... It, it's such an interesting space. I'm going to be returning to China a few times in this uh, podcast season. Uh, there is so much uh, Western blood on the tracks, as, as it were, with eBay uh, and Groupon and Uber uh, and many other companies sort of trying to get their way in and, and you know losing out to the to the local rivals. So I'm I'm eager to dig into that in more depth. Uh, yeah, I think the only one that's really succeeded is uh, Airbnb. They have a great China presence on a relative basis. Um, Uber, I would kind of argue, is actually a success from the perspective of they now own, what is it, 18% or something like that of uh, DD. So uh, I think they actually are amongst the, more, the most successful, although to your point, they got beaten by the Chinese incumbents. Right. I mean, the, the, the deal to get 18% of DD is going to turn out to be one of the brilliant uh, deals of our time, uh, I'm sure. You know, that, 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 that looks like how, how it's going to play out. Let's talk about blockchain, um, if you don't mind. You, you did say you were talk, you're investing quite heavily in in crypto. What do you think is exciting about about that space, crypto and blockchain? I think uh, the things that are are reasonably proven out at this point, or, or ones where I have clear belief, and I think that there's where you know the crypto world is uh, basically a speculative bubble coupled to real value creation. So I'd say 99% of crypto projects out there today are going to go to zero, but I think the other 1% are incredibly exciting. So, you know, the main use cases that I think are real is number one, store of wealth or store of value. Um, so, you know, really a uh, digital asset, uh, which is government resistant, censorship resistant, et cetera. I think the second big area is around privacy tokens and really sort of extending the concept of a private Swiss bank account uh, to the world. So $20 trillion 
uh, global assets are actually kept in either Cayman Islands or Swiss bank accounts. So there's a real need uh, for people to have sort of private money. Um, I think the third big area is capital formation or fundraising. So all the ICOs happening through ERC-20 tokens or other mechanisms, I think is an incredibly exciting area that will continue. And I think companies like Harbor may then extend that to real estate or to other areas. Uh, and then lastly, I think there's really interesting things happening in sort of the non-fungible token world. In other words, persistent digital goods and the ability to, you know, mix and match swords across video games or, you know, there's, there's lots of different versions of this, but the ability to create a digital good that persists as long as the blockchain does. In between all of the noise, uh, there there's some real value being created. I think that would be my take on this uh, as well, that we tend to lose sight of uh, what's really happening. And I come across very, very calm, sober teams of real crypto developers uh, who are just making their way through a product roadmap. And and they aren't the ones who are taking out uh, television adver- advertising, which is something that's happening uh, in, 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 in the UK. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious about how you actually build out um, one of these these companies because we we've already discussed that we we kind of understand how you build out a traditional company with you know uh, friends and family investing and then an angel round and then seed and series a and, and and so on what the metrics are what the team needs to look like what the skills need to look like um, and we have some models um, that are perhaps not as well understood on with with open source uh, projects, right? How you how you get an open source project going, how you motivate that community, how you build it out and scale it. And we've seen, you know, Red Hat and Elastic and a Hadoop and a bunch of things um, come out of there. The, 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 one of the areas that look, seems a bit undiscovered to me is how do you actually um, build a process for building out a, 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 a crypto business uh, that has a has these kind of token economics uh, around it what does product market fit really mean and um, in that context what does it mean when uh, you know the, the 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 team working on it may actually not face the existential risk of of running out of cash um, any time in the next 20 or 30 years uh, have you given some thought to these uh, these questions as well I think that people are trying to reinvent too much in terms of at least the, the corporate and governance models. And we actually have structures that have worked for literally hundreds of years, and there's no reason to assume that they won't translate well into the crypto world. I think one of the biggest issues in terms of uh, crypto company formation is the lack of aligned incentives. And so, you know, you have these really weird circumstances where you'll have a um, initial LLC or C corp, so you have the company set up, the founder equity effectively may exist outside of that because they'll get tokens directly instead of having it flow through a company. Um, the investors also get tokens directly versus participating in a company. And then you set up potentially a foundation on top of a company whose purpose is uncertain relative to the company. In other words, if the company is trying to develop the protocol, what does the foundation exist for? And so you end up with, these, um, with the tokens, which is the real value of the, of the project, spread across four different parties. And if you look at most traditional fundraising models, you really centralize all that into a corporation and people own equity in the company. And then as the company hits milestones, you basically get issued rewards in terms of either something going public, which would be the equivalent of an ICO, um, or you get paid out in distributions, which would be the equivalent of just distributing tokens. And so I think a lot of the ways that things are set up are just really screwy from an incentives perspective 
and a best practice would be to just sort of collapse um, all of the tokens for founders, investors, uh, and the foundation into a single corporation. And honestly, it's really unclear to me that most of the time a foundation is needed unless the plan or intention is to dissolve the corporation and have the foundation be the only thing that's functioning, which is closer to what Ethereum did. Um, so I do think that there are very confusing models out there. And, and I, you know, often I don't know why people did them. Like the foundations, I think, often existed for tax optimization purposes versus because it was a good idea. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think there's all sorts of weird stuff out there in the crypto world. A lot of crypto is about solving incentive problems, uh, but it really is... Uh... Uh, the moat in, in your own eye and uh, the cobbler's children having no shoes <laughs> because there are these conflicts of interest that are almost built into having founders who've become, you know, um, multi-digit wealthy with instant liquidity uh, before they've achieved product market fit. And 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 the from an investment perspe- perspective or even just from the, the perspective of what can, keeps them developing and keeps them hungry uh, on this project, you're left with, well, it's almost within their fiat, right? If they feel like doing it, if they believe it in, a, in it in it enough, um, then they'll continue. And that seems like quite an unsatisfying way to sort of establish trust in a, in a venture that we're, we're, we're going to be sitting together on for several years. Yeah, no, a friend of mine actually did an analysis that looked at developer velocity for different protocols. So you know, what are the number of commits on GitHub um, over time and how, how, re- how real are those commits? In other words, if you're just changing a comment, then obviously that doesn't count as a real commit. And he basically found that for a large number of crypto uh, projects, the second the ICO happened, the developer velocity went to zero. People basically just stopped writing any code. So I do think that there are these really weird incentives, and that's because founders yeah. could just take money out directly. And so there was no reason to keep going. You know, those Lamborghinis are not going to drive themselves, they're right? The Lambos. The Lambos need to be driven. So, so just thinking about where, where it sits in the, in the face of, of kind of evolution, a lot of people say, well, blockchain and crypto is, is where the internet was in 94. Um, I, I took a harsher view, or maybe a more skeptical view, and I said, listen, I think it's more like 79 or 1980, right? We don't even have SMTP as a protocol in place. Uh, we don't have Gopher and you know Archie and um, certainly don't have 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 the web and these are the things that we're trying to build and only we're building them under the full glare of hundreds of billions of dollars and and the media spotlight. It, 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 where 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 do you see its development? I mean, how would you describe where it is and what needs to happen before we really start seeing um, a a non speculative uh, uptake uh, of the technology? I think we have a really bifurcated market. So I think on the one hand, we have a set of things that, in my opinion, have escaped velocity or at least have proven out a use case. And in particular, I'm thinking of store of wealth or store of value. And then mm-hmm. I guess gray or black market payments, right? So that's really Bitcoin and then Monero, Zcash, um, maybe to some extent Ethereum. You know, these are basically being used as reserve currencies slash, um, you know, units of denomination for other tokens. Um, in particular, Bitcoin and Ethereum for that latter. Um, I think that, uh, so I think, I think some use case around store while store value is at least 80% proven and will continue to exist. It reminds me a lot of the late 90s internet, not from the perspective of things are that advanced, but more from the perspective of there were so many different prod, uh, so many companies in the late 90s 
that at the time were considered completely ridiculous and pointed to as giant failures that came back in a better form 15 years later that succeeded. So Webvan raised a billion dollars and then went to zero. And now we have Instacart, which is sort of a next generation version of that. Or we had um, Pets.com, which everybody derided for shipping pet food online. And then recently Chewy.com sold for something like two or three billion dollars. Or we had Cosmo, which everybody made fun of for real-time delivery. And now we have DoorDash and Postmates and Uber Eats and all these other services. And so I do think that um, crypto is in a similar state where there's all sorts of different projects that um, people are talking about and are super excited about. They just make no sense today because there's not the adoption of crypto that would be needed. The infrastructure often doesn't exist. Um, you know, Ethereum can't quite scale at this point to the levels that would make it a true consumer retail service. And so there's just enormous gaps throughout the world, but very exciting things have happened, I think, for, for areas like store value. It's like um, it's infrastructure phase versus deployment phase, right, in the Carlota Perez model. So you can't deploy Webvan before enough of the infrastructure is in place, which means um, e-logistics and smart devices in everyone's homes and, uh, and, and so on. And one of the, the, the lenses that I see when I look at uh, what's happening in crypto is building higher up the stack applications that are predicated on everything lower down the stack being in place and being well understood, especially the, the emergent interrelationships between them, uh, it, it, you, you're, you're building the wrong thing at the wrong time. And you're making a bet on your ability to stay liquid, um, which, you know, given how much is being raised, <laughs> is, is quite possible um, for the deployment to uh, the, the deployment technologies lower down the stack to establish themselves and become mature. Yeah, absolutely. And so I do think there's going to be a long wait for a subset of these things to finally bear fruit. And in many cases, it'll be the V3 of it 10, 15 years later when somebody straight out of college just decides to go and reinvent something that didn't work before. The flip of it is I do think is there are some really interesting distribution opportunities in the short run because anytime you launch a new platform, there's always the ability to arbitrage that distribution. So for example, Zynga really grew off of the Facebook platform early on when it was sort of wide open and cheap to distribute on. And I think CryptoKitties is a great example of an application that if it had been launched on Facebook, wouldn't have really have gone anywhere. But you had a large crypto native population that was willing to spend Ethereum on um, buying, you know, CryptoKitties and spreading them. And I think it was almost like this interesting moment where you had a distribution channel that's open simply because it was a crypto native product that was kind of fun. And so I'm surprised that we haven't seen more of those recently because I do think that there's a waiting community that just wants to be able to do things in crypto. Yeah, but, you know, CryptoKitties had a very short spike. I mean, in a world where everyone was going to be famous for 15 minutes, I think CryptoKitties is down to 100 or 200 daily active users uh, now. So it, it, it raised a lot of money because we're, we're talking Ether, Ethereum converting to dollars here. But but it it didn't have the, the staying power of Zynga. I mean, Zynga managed to build quite a big company and a big business off, off the back of it for a while. Yeah, absolutely. And the way that Zynga did it was effectively build a dozen different apps. And the one that the only one that really sustained in the short run for them was poker. And everything else had these very fast virality mechanics until they started building Farmville and other things. And so I, I totally agree with you. I think that in general, viral applications don't tend to sustain. I think the uh, interesting thing about CryptoKitties is if you just launch an identical product on top of Facebook or some other distribution mechanism, which was known for sort of social spread, it just wouldn't have gone anywhere today. Mm -hmm. There just wouldn't mm -hmm. have been the interest. Yeah. It would have been too expensive. But because it was crypto-native, 
um, you know, it was really able to spread within the crypto community rapidly. And then to your point, it had sort of the virality burnout cycle, which, you know, you can kind of expect for most, most applications of this type. We've spent a bit of time on, on crypto, and I did want to chat to you about AI because you've made, uh, you've made a couple of investments in, in chip companies that are looking at uh, optimizing for various types of machine learning. And in the e- our email exchange, you uh, sort of were pointing me towards a couple of interesting blockchain uh, uh, projects that, that you thought were kind of relevant for an AI um economy can we just like let's just hop over to the ai space and just get a very quick take of um from you of what you really think the the opportunity here is yeah i think one of the most interesting opportunities that tends to be under talked about in my mind in ai is really the semiconductor systems layer and so with every technology wave you end up with a massive company which builds the underlying chips for that wave so for example you know, Broadcom really built out the networking semiconductor layer. Um, you know, NVIDIA uh, built out uh, graphics processing. And we'll talk about other things, obviously, they're doing relative to AI. Um, Qualcomm and ARM really built out the mobile layer. Intel really built out sort of the, the microcomputer layer. And so um, with every sort of technology wave, you have the semiconductor layer built by a new, new company that sort of overrides the incumbents. And the question is, who will that be for the machine learning era? And so far, most people are obviously using NVIDIA GPUs. But if you look at a GPU um, to run a machine learning model, the surface of the chip, really, most of it isn't useful for machine learning applications because really what you need for a machine learning model is fast I.O. and then tons and tons of matrix multiplication because at least the current AI models tend to really uh, use that paradigm. And so about... Five or or seven years ago, um, Google uh, did a calculation where they asked if you were to, um, if every user were to do five minutes of voice search a day, how many data centers would we need? And they realized they would need to five or 10x the number of data centers that they had, entirely 10x, you know. And so um, what they decided to do instead is is build custom ASICs uh, that they ended up calling uh, TPUs for tensor processing units. that would allow them to run very performant machine learning models at scale. And, you know, these chips tend to, uh, you know, dramatically outperform NVIDIA GPUs in terms of power and performance. And so one of the areas I'm really excited about is funding the next generation of um, machine learning semiconductor companies. And so, you know, those great companies like Rock or Cerebras or the like who, you know, are working in this market right now for training or inference purposes. You're absolutely right. The demand for compute in a world full of machine learning uh, is going to go through the roof. OpenAI did this benchmark where they looked at how many uh, cycles were being used for state-of-the-art models. Now, these are state-of-the-art models, like AlphaGo type things, and, and they saw there had been a 300,000-fold uh, increase in the amount of compute being used um, in a couple of years. And, and there are, I, I track around 20 companies, uh, excluding quantum computing companies who are building uh, custom silicon for different types of uh, machine learning com- com- compute. I find it so exciting because we we moved to this very, very simple generalized model, right? It was the x86. Uh, everyone coded the same way. And, and then we started to tweak it a little bit with, with uh, you know, mobile risk and, 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 and GPUs. But if you look at... Um, the players chasing after this. You've got in the UK a company called GraphCore, which is building a competitor to Google's TPUs. Um, you've got a lot of companies doing very low-powered 
uh, chips for edge-based computing on the basis that you won't always be able to rely on um, getting your data and your, your inferences to and from the cloud. Um, so Mythic is one uh, in, um, uh, based, out of the, based out of the US. But then when you think about what that means from a, a, a software perspective and a value creation and a value shift, you need to think about uh, compilers, debuggers, tool sets, deployment, update, patching, security, uh, at model management. Uh, there's a whole set of things that we have to invent in order to, to, to build the, the, the stack, the new stack, right? The new enterprise software stack. The one we've currently got has created untold amount of value and, and perhaps what's going to happen over the next 10 or 15 years is we're going to go through a similar process to the one we saw over the previous 30. I think the, the uh, last 30 years or the last 50 year cycle in some sense uh, has continuously driven home the point that the hardware and infrastructure and tooling that you have ultimately is necessary to shift before you can have the shift of the, the layers above it. And so for the internet, people forget now that fundamentally we were bandwidth and processing limited. Right. So if you didn't have a, a fast connection to people's homes and you didn't have computers that could actually render things rapidly or uh, deal with video or other things, then you just didn't have the ability to do different types of services on top of it. You know, like YouTube couldn't have existed 10 years earlier. Um, so I just think that people kind of miss that in for machine learning and also for the blockchain world, um, you know, the underlying hardware and infrastructure are actually important. And, you know, obviously Bitmain has had a real impact on Bitcoin mining, and custom ASICs for other protocols, uh, but there's a lot of tooling that needs to be built there as well. Let's just talk briefly about AGI as well. Um, AGI, artificial general intelligence, uh, 2035, later, unspecifiable. What, what, what's, what's your perspective? I think it's, it's hard to tell. I think, um, uh, you know, the book Super Intelligence by Nick Bostrom has a pretty good overview of different hypotheses around what will lead to AGI. I think it's a certainty. In other words, I don't think there's anything special about the human brain. And in fact, having worked as a biologist and worked in neuroscience labs, I know how crappy the human brain is um, in some ways in terms of how it's designed and how it works. Um, I think ultimately one of the things that I find fascinating is the high degree of overlap between the AI and blockchain communities. So if you look at people who are uh, graduating from PhDs in machine learning or PhDs in uh, math with more sort of computer science applications, many of them are sort of uh, struggling in terms of whether to go into the blockchain world or go into the machine learning world. And so I do think there's, there's overlap there. And one of the big questions is what happens once the blockchain world is a little bit farther along and you have programmatic economics and programmatic governance, and you're really moving economic systems and governance systems over into code. And so if you have financially motivated bots effectively controlling contracts and transactions, and you're evolving them to be more and more intelligent and performant, what does that really imply in terms of the self-criticality of those systems? And, you know, the, the, the crazy idea would be you eventually have AGI emerge not in a Google data center, which is sort of what everybody's assuming, but actually have it emerge through a series of hackers building uh, almost like a next generation Ethereum or something uh, decentralized across the world and, you know, effectively feeding an AGI with, with on-chain data and um, on-chain motivations around economic systems. 
So I think I think there's really fascinating ways this world these worlds may collide in the far future. But in that particular model that you described, though, the the is the AGI resulting as an emergent property of the network, or is it that individual agents uh, on the network exhibit uh, a full spectrum of AGI-like characteristics? I think it's a really interesting open question. There are uh, projects like OpenMind, uh, which are basically groups trying to build um, artificial intelligence on the blockchain. Obviously, it's way too early now, and decentralized systems are very non-performance, and there's no scale and all the issues we talked about. So I think it's still very early days. But you could imagine a world where a reasonable portion of financial transactions is moved onto the blockchain, where you have large data sets through protocols like DIRT or others uh, moving onto the blockchain, and then you have algorithms basically running on top of it to manipulate data and to execute economic transactions. And if you really start thinking about evolving some of these systems, you know, Numeri would be a really early example of that, then you can imagine all sorts of outcomes. I think the big, the big, uh, big thing that I always think about as somebody coming at computer science from a biologist's perspective is that the big difference between AI and other technologies is today it's a technology, but I think in the future will actually be its own species. If you have something that is evolving rapidly, that can edit its own code and can drive its own evolution, and eventually it becomes intelligent, then you actually have something that is in and of itself a species and isn't just like nuclear weapons or biotechnology or other things where we're worried about what's going to happen, but hey, can we control it because it's a technology? I I think there's this fundamental split that will happen once we have a self-evolving thinking system. Right. So the idea that, I mean, let's talk a little bit about Numerai. So Numerai is, it's a, it's essentially a, a going to build a super smart hedge fund based on a decentralized participation from lots of great data scientists. And then we, when we think about this idea of it evolving itself, and we, we just happen to choose Numerai, we don't mean it specifically, um, in a sense, it, it evolves itself into a point where it has all the attributes that we normally ascribe to biological intelligence, right? So goal direction and uh uh, in, evolution and improvement and uh, and, and so on. Um, it's such an interesting I- I- idea. If it's a new species, it raises a whole series of of different questions, right? Because we think about species in a very different way to the way we think about technologies, right? Species may have rights that ascribe to to, to them. Um, and when I look at companies, I mean, I do see um, that that in giving this idea of corporate citizenship or corporate personhood, which we, we have done to, to companies for a long time for, for legal reasons, we've already established certain principles around what kind of non-human things can acquire rights. Uh, so we've done some thinking about this uh, uh, previously as a, as a collection of, uh, of societies um, and not clear that those those principles can't extend out to the sorts of phenomenon you've described. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, ultimately, the ethics of AI is a fascinating area. And uh, by that, I mean things like if something is artificially intelligent, should we be allowed to simulate pain in it? Probably not, right? Effectively, we'd be torturing a machine, even though we say, well, it's virtual and is it real and all the rest of it. But what if it evolves pain? itself. Sorry, Elad, what if it evolves pain itself because it turns out to be a useful signal uh, for its own kind of achievement of its own goals and specification of those goals? Oh, absolutely. And then if you remove the ability for it to obtain those goals and you're causing pain, should you be allowed to do that? But what are the broader implications? Because it depends on what its subjective function is. So 
I think these ethical questions get really complicated. In parallel, if it really does become a species, you know, if you look at the history of Earth, species conflicts don't tend to end well. You know, usually, you know, you end up with um, a species really dominating its environment, or alternatively, you end up with species proliferating in ways that we can't control or don't expect. So a great example is, you know, Australia's overrun with rabbits, which were accidentally introduced into that ecosystem. There was no natural predators, and, you know, they just spread like crazy, and there have been all these attempts to uh, knock down those populations with viruses or other things or other predators that are introduced. And so, you know, in general, if you start thinking about AI as a species and ask what will that species actually be optimizing for and competing for and how does that relate to humanity, I think it leads to all sorts of uncertain questions around how will all this evolve in the future. Wow, what a great place for us to uh, get to the, the tail end of these uh, this podcast. I- couple of quick questions. Uh, what are you pessimistic about? This is going to sound a little bit too meta, but I'm a little bit pessimistic about optimism. And what I mean by that is I feel like one of the great driving forces of technology and Silicon Valley over the last few decades has been this sense of optimism, which is you can accomplish anything uh, if, if you put your mind to it and you should dream big. And technology is a force for good that you can use to create outsized rewards for humanity. You know, you can really help people through technology. And one of the things that concerns me is that there's been this really fast rise of cynicism, I feel, over the last five years in everything from shows like Silicon Valley on through to the discourse around, um, you know, is technology actually good for society? Or you see people who worked at Facebook or other companies write these self-flagellating blog posts around how they now hate the company they used to work for. And I think ultimately, um, you know, personally, I'm, I'm very optimistic about uh, the impact that technology has had and will have. And, you know, the ability to access pricing, to um, be part of a global dialogue, um, to participate in uh, free information, like those things have had transformative impact on our society globally. And I worry that if people lose that sense of optimism, um, they will, uh, then less will get done. And so an example of that is there's a founder that I funded who um, emailed me a few weeks ago saying that he went to a dinner party and he mentioned that he wanted to change the world and he's really excited about the company he's working on. And he said that his friends at the dinner party made fun of him for it. And my response was, you should find a better class of friends. You know, <laughs> like um, you should find people who are like-minded and excited to do big things because it's the people who want to do big things who end up accomplishing them. Well, thank you for listening to episode four of this season of the EV podcast. If you haven't signed up for my newsletter, you can do so now on www.exponentialview.co. And you can find Elad on at Elad Gill at Twitter. Thanks for listening and see you again soon. (laughs) 